0: There are many Christians who fear ghosts. Uh, They believe that they manifest, ghosts, that is the disembodied spirits of the dead, believe that they manifest, sometimes terrorize people, haunt locations, and so forth. And then, of course, there are Christians who uh, object to the view of human nature that I hold, namely non-reductive physicalism, which we've talked about in previous shows, And they believe that no, it is that humans do have an immaterial soul or spirit that is separable from the body. Both of those two types of Christians I just mentioned might point to a few texts in the New Testament as evidence that Jesus' disciples believed in ghosts. Those are the texts that we look at in today's episode of The Apologetics. This is Chris Date, and welcome to The Apologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe, and why we believe it, and not something else. Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of The Apologetics. I am Chris Date, and looks like uh, the people in the chat are telling me that I look and sound good, so good to know. Um, Today's going to be a somewhat short episode. I don't anticipate it going any longer than an hour, probably less. Uh, by the way, side note, Jonathan Green in the chat says he loves the guitar in the new video, um, in the new intro and outro music. I just want to say thanks to my friend Isaiah Burridge, who has been on the show in a previous episode. He is the one who took my original podcast theme music, which was produced by Glenn Peoples, and he uh, made an acoustic version of it for this new video podcast Kind of thing that I'm doing. Video podcast is a misnomer, it's an oxymoron, but you get what I'm saying. So anyway, thanks to Isaiah Burridge for um, for doing that music, and thanks to uh, Susan and um, uh, everyone else that's in the chat as well for being here. I appreciate it. So anyway, today's going to be a fairly short episode, I, I think. I could be wrong. I often am. I sometimes go over um, what, uh, you know, the, the, the time that I expect to go. But... Um, I don't have a lot of material to go over. I've got two, three, but basically two is text to go into a little bit of depth into. Um, and uh, for those of you who may have seen me announce upcoming episodes previously, you might be a little bit um, bummed out to find out that today isn't going to be uh, an episode where I interview Stephen Meyer, the author of Return of the God Hypothesis. Um, what happened there was that a few days ago, His uh, assistant got back to me saying that um, some things have come up and and Dr. Meyer has to push out our... Interview. So we are. St- I am still going to interview him, and I anticipate it will be the next episode of the Apologetics. Uh, but he and I are going to pre-record sometime next week, and then it'll be the next episode of the show two weeks from today. So if that's what you were hoping to see, don't worry. Come back in two weeks' time, and um, uh, and you'll get to see the interview. It'll just be pre-recorded and not live, which is a little bit of a bummer. You won't be able to ask any questions of our of, of our guest, but at the very least, you'll get to hear about uh, about the book. Um, also... I just got back yesterday, yesterday afternoon, from my wife's and my anniversary getaway. To those of you who contributed contributed to our anniversary fund, thank you for that. Appreciate it. Uh, we had a really good time. We um, dropped our younger kids off at my mom's on Friday morning. Uh, we left our two older boys here for the weekend. Thankfully, they're not, they didn't throw parties or anything. They're not party people. And then my wife and I alone drove a couple of hours north to a little town called La Conner. Um, which is near Anacortes, which is a big, bigger town than that. Um, it's near the San Juan Islands. In fact, Anacortes is on, I think, what is considered a San Juan Island. Um, and we spent a lot of time sightseeing and and just relaxing and enjoying each other's company. We went whale watching Saturday uh, evening. We got to see a couple of orcas um, playing around in the sound for a couple of hours. It was a really, it was a really great time together. And my wife and I enjoyed the break from all the hustle and bustle of daily life and from our kids. So thank you for helping us to make that happen. We're back in town now and, um, you know, I'm trying to get back into the swing of things and thus today's episode. So anyway, that's that catches you up to where I'm at. Oh, uh, so my friend Skylar says he's watching me instead of the Toronto um, Maple Leafs and Habs game. Who are the Habs, Skylar? You'll have to clarify that. I'm not sure... Habs. The Leafs versus Habs. Why can't I remember that, Skylar? It's evidently the the uh, Stanley Cup Game 7, the final game, if I'm understanding you correctly. Um, which, by the way, side note, has me really encourage... Oh, they're the Canadiens! Okay. Ah, so I don't know why they're called the Habs. What I will say is one of my favorite goalies... I, I was a goalie, a hockey goalie in high school and shortly thereafter. And one of my favorite goaltenders was Patrick Waugh, um, who for a while was one of the was the lead goaltender for the Canadians uh, before he moved to the Colorado Avalanche. So that's interesting. Good to hear that... Um, the canadians are uh in game seven with the leafs also cool to hear two canadian teams going at it that's that's good to hear anyway sorry i'm uh i'm rambling thanks for joining skylar okay so with all of that out of the way i'll go ahead and dive into the topic um of today's episode but just for those of you who might have jumped on the um into the show and the chat um, a little bit late. Just as a reminder, two weeks from today, the next episode of The Apologetics will, Lord willing, be my interview with Stephen Meyer, author of the new book, The Return of the God Hypothesis. Um, As I mentioned a few minutes ago, we were going to do that interview live today, uh, but he ended up having to reschedule, and we had to reschedule it on a day and time where we can pre-record. So... We that he won't be available during a live interview to answer questions or anything, um, but at the very least you'll get to hear about um, his book. And I'll tell you what, if you shoot if you shoot me your question for Dr. Meyer uh, to the email address on the screen, theapologetics at hotmail um, I'd be happy to pose a few of your questions to him while I'm recording the interview. Um, so if you're interested, go ahead and. Oh, the Habs is short for habitants, like inhabitants the people who inhabit Montreal the Canadians gotcha okay anyway so uh, two weeks from today uh, will be the interview with Stephen Meyer, author of The Return of the God Hypothesis and again, shoot me via email any questions that you have for Dr. Meyer I'll try to get to them in the show this is not the only upcoming episode I have planned I also have another episode planned with my friend Dr. Eric Silverman he has recently published a book that he edited uh, and contributed to on the, uh, on the virtue of chastity and whether chastity uh, has a place in in today's secular world as a virtue. Um, If you want to hear more about that, tune in to upcoming episodes of The Apologetics. We're scheduled to record next week, and I'll be interested in um, sharing with you that interview as well. Now, uh, one more interview that I want to mention is not at all planned yet. I, I don't I haven't secured the person that I'm inviting on my show. Um, I haven't gotten his confirmation that he'll come on the show yet, but I think he will. Um, and it's this person this is joel green joel b green he is a uh, professor at my alma mater uh, is, is alma mater the right word for a seminary like i know that you use that phrase to describe where you get your undergraduate I'm not sure if you use it to describe where you get your masters well anyway the seminary at which i earned my master's of theology uh, joel b green is a professor there and because i have been targeted by some people i've debated recently uh um, who and, and they're doing all sorts of slandering and maligning online right now. Um, And and their slander and their maligning, uh, not just of me, by the way, but of Edward Fudge and other people as well, Glenn Peoples, their their slander and their maligning has to do with their claim that physicalists like me violate the Council of Chalcedon's Christology. Um, That's where we get the hypostatic union from, the union between Christ's fully human and fully divine natures. And these... uh, I think they're brothers in Christ. They don't evidently consider me one. Um, They uh, have, like I said, been slandering and maligning me, Edward Fudge, Glenn Peoples, and others for, um, according to them, violating Chalcedonian uh, Christology with our belief in physicalism. So I have reached out to Professor Green. He is a, a biblical scholar, and he's a physicalist, and he's a theologian. Uh, he's he's either a biblical scholar or a theologian. I think he's a theologian. Um, but anyway, he's going to come on the show, uh, I think, that's my, my goal, to discuss physicalism and whether a physicalist understanding of uh, uh, human nature violates Chalcedonian Christology. And he's already expressed some initial inclination to appear on my show. I'm just waiting for a final confirmation. So be on the lookout for that episode as well um and with that out of the way let's go ahead and dive into today's topic so for those of you who haven't watched previous Episodes of the Apologetics. Uh, two of them, in particular in particular, that I'll mention in a moment. Um, what we're going to be talking about today has to do with the subtopic of systematic theology known as anthropology. Anthropology comes from the Greek word anthropos, which means human. And Alan Cairns, in Dictionary of Theological Terms, defines anthropology as the science or study of man, man's creation, original state, probation, fall into sin, etc., etc., etc. Um, and then, under anthropology uh, would be the question of philosophy of mind. Philosophy of mind, according to Britannica, is a reflection on the nature of mental phenomena, and especially on the relationship of the mind to the body and the rest of the physical world. These are some um, uh, these are some slides that I presented in previous episodes of the show talking about philosophy of mind, anthropology, so forth. And in those previous episodes where I discussed this topic, I introduced you to the debate between monism and dualism. And these are answers to the question of how many kinds of substances are human beings composed? All right? Monism, meaning that literally means one ism. Okay? And monism maintains that human beings are composed of just one kind of substance, whereas dualism is two ism. And according to dualism, human beings are made up of two kinds of substances. So when I talk about kinds of substances, I'm talking about um, particularly physical and non-physical substances. In the case of physical substances, I'm talking about substances that are composed of matter or energy. So um, in terms of matter, you might think of a radio transmitter, which is made up of all of the little pieces of metal, atoms of metal, molecules of metal or whatever that that are um, attached to each other uh, to form a radio transmitter. Or you might think of the human body and brain. And if you, in terms of physical substances that are immaterial, that is, made of energy rather than uh, matter, uh, you might think of electromagnetic, uh, electro, electromagnetic radiation, or you might think of the brain's electromagnetic field. And I went into that in a previous episode of the show. As for non-physical substances, we're talking about substances that exist beyond the physical world. Um, so spirit in the sense of God being spirit, heaven where God exists naturally um, uh, and by where obviously I don't mean spatially because he's not three-dimensional um, and we're talking about abstract concepts and ideas right so these are physical and non-physical substances that are in uh, that are at play in debate over um, dualism versus monism. Dualism, As I said earlier, is the view that human beings are made up of two kinds of substances. Um, And this would be physical and non-physical substances. So if you're a dichotomist, um, you believe that a human person has a physical body and a non-physical soul or spirit. And if you're a trichotomist, you believe that we're made up of a physical body and a non-physical soul and a non-physical spirit. But both of those are non-physical Uh, substances. So there's still only two kinds of substances in trichotomy. It's still a form of dualism, physical and non-physical substances, right? But I am one of those strange and extremely minority Christians who believes in a physicalist form of monism. A physicalist, like me, believes that a human is made up of a body, and that's the only kind of substance, is physical substance. Um, Now, we could talk about whether we also have whether it's material and immaterial that both of which are physical i mentioned or I, I suggested that the brain's electromagnetic field might qualify as part of what makes up a human being in which case it would still just be one kind of substance um but it would be uh material and immaterial both physical um but either way the point is is that a monist as a, as a physicalist monist i believe that a human person is made up of only one kind of substance, and that kind of substance is physical. Specifically the body, including the brain, and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, in previous episodes... Oh, and then lastly, um, there is a distinction in the literature between reductive and non-reductive physicalists. As I have said in previous episodes of this show, I am a non-reductive physicalist, which, I- which means I believe that mental states are not reducible or identical to brain states. The mind is a property, function, or some other aspect of the living brain. It's not identical to the living brain, it is some aspect of the living brain. Now what that allows me and other non-reductive physicalists to say is that while the mind is dependent upon the living brain in order to function and in order for a person to be conscious, nevertheless, consciousness is not merely the product of firing neurons. Um, the uh, the direction of cause and effect is not solely from brain to mind, it's also from mind to brain. So we non-reductive physicalists believe that your, that your conscious self can cause the neurons in your brain to fire a certain way by thinking certain things. And that uh, affects the neurons firing. So neurons give rise to mind, but also mind affects neurons, is n- non-reductive physicalism now in the first episode of the apologetics in which i covered this topic it was episode 16 and i discussed a couple of texts in the new testament in which are sometimes thought to to support substance dualism particularly the text in which jesus says to his father on the cross moments before he dies into your hands i commend my spirit and then also in acts chapter four i believe it is when stephen is being stoned to death and he s- sees jesus and he says receive my spirit And in this episode, episode 16 of the show, I explain why I don't think that those are actually talking about substance dualism's immaterial soul, but rather the breath of life from God that animates physical creatures. And then a few episodes later, just a few episodes ago, I offered one possible, albeit not something I think is very realistic, one possible explanation for how... God can preserve a person's identity between death and resurrection, even if thousands of years transpire between those points in time, uh, If even if human beings are physical only and don't have some sort of a immaterial soul or spirit that survives death or that exists after death. All right, so those are a couple of episodes you might want to go back and watch um, after you've watched this one if you haven't already watched them already. And in future episodes I'll continue to discuss the topic. As I just said a moment ago, I do hope to have uh, Professor Green on the show to talk about physicalism and Chalcedon. But what I want to discuss today are two texts, really three, but two of them are parallels to one another, in which it seems as if uh, on the surface, as if Jesus' disciples believed in and feared ghosts. I'm talking about Matthew 14, 26 and it's parallel Mark 6.49. Uh, Matthew 14, 26 says, But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. Uh, and then the new internet the new international version translates translates Luke 24, 37. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. This is in the upper room after Jesus' resurrection and he suddenly appears in their midst and he terrifies them. And the NIV translates it ghost. So um, most translations, if not all of them, with the exception perhaps of the King James version, um, translate Matthew 14, 26 and probably Mark six forty-nine ghost. It's almost unanimous in, um, in terms of translations. Uh, Luke 24, 37 exhibits more diversity in English translations. Some translations say spirit, others say ghost. So we'll dig into that, but the point here is that the virtual um, consensus of Bible translators is that when Jesus is seen walking on the water by his disciples, and when he suddenly appears in their midst after his resurrection in the upper room, That the disciples are terrified because they think they see a ghost. Now, if what I'm about to argue for is true, it doesn't mean dualism isn't true. right? Um, Somebody could, and, and I did before I was a physicalist, believe in dualism, but not believe that disembodied souls can manifest visibly on earth. And I do think that that is the most consistent dualist position to hold. And so my goal with today's episode is not to make you think that dualism isn't true if you're a dualist, but rather to convince you that even if you are a dualist, um, number one, these texts aren't support for dualism. And number two, you shouldn't fear ghosts. At least you shouldn't look at these texts as uh, substantiation for the the sanity, uh, the legitimacy of fearing ghosts. Because I don't think that's in fact what's happening here. And that's the and I'll be arguing why here as we proceed. Alright, so let's take a closer look at the first of these two texts, Matthew 14.26, and again the parallel in Mark 6.49. The word that is translated by so many translations as ghost is the word phantasma. And you can even hear as I say it in Greek, phantasma, that it is the basis of the English word phantasm. You can see why it would so naturally lend itself to being translated as ghost, because what do we think of when we think of phantasm? I, I, I would almost, I, I guess if, if I, excuse me, if I asked ninety-nine English speakers, sorry, if I if I asked a hundred English speakers, what is a phantasm? They would probably say it's a ghost or something like that. Um, so what they feared, this is really important when you're when you come upon an interesting text in the. Bible, in one of your popular translations of the Bible, um, and somebody says something that you think contradicts that text, you've got to dig into the original text of that text, um, the original language in which it was written, and not simply go by English translations. Popular, you know, well-respected English translations are great, and I'm not at all trying to cast doubt on them, but what I am trying to stave off or, or, or prevent you from doing is rejecting a physicalist like me or, or somebody who doesn't believe in ghosts but is a dualist on the grounds that here the disciples fear a ghost. Now, of course, just because they feared a ghost, if that's in fact what happened, wouldn't mean that you should. Um, but the point is, uh, if you think that the disciples believed in ghosts, and that means it's probably reasonable to do so, and, so you, and, and, and that belief in ghosts would be consistent with Jewish thought, um, you don't... You can't just simply quote the English text here and say, See, Mr. Physicalist, or see, Mr. Ghost Denier, Uh, the disciples feared ghosts. They evidently believed they were real. Well, hold up. It doesn't say ghost. It wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek, and the Greek word is phantasma. That's the point I'm trying to get at here. So we're going to dig into what phantasma means in a moment. But here's a few examples of the commentaries that, like the translations, seem pretty universally to think Uh, that what the disciples fear here is what they think is a ghost. So, for example, this is R.T. France in his New International Commentary on the New Testament uh, on Matthew. He calls their reaction superstitious. He says it's hardly surprising because a disembodied spirit could appear where a physical body would sink. And he says that the term phantasma may reflect the popular belief that evil spirits lived in the sea or that those who had drowned haunted the water. Now, my understanding is these beliefs may indeed have been popular in the Greco-Roman world, but I've yet to see, personally, it doesn't mean that, that I doubt it exists, but I've yet to see evidence that this was these kinds of beliefs were popular amongst the Jewish population. That's going to be something I don't really cover much here, um, and so probably would merit some additional study beyond this. I'm going to be looking solely at the text and uh, some relevant linguistic data um, from a comparable period of time. So it's popular it's possible that the Jewish people in the Greco-Roman world did fear evil You know ghosts, you know that haunted the sea or something like that. That's possible But I've not seen evidence of that um, so I'm gonna be going by the evidence. I'll be presenting momentarily um, Craig Blomberg in his new American commentary on Matthew says that phantasma in verse 26 refers to a specter or apparition of from the realm of the dead, as in the episode of Saul, Samuel, and the Witch of Endor in 1 Samuel 28. Uh, it's funny that I mentioned 1 Samuel 28 there, because as, as I did that, a new, ch- a new comment popped up in the chat from Susan saying, I think that the Witch of Endor pretended to see something like a ghost because she recognized Saul and knew he was wanting to communicate with Samuel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now... That may or may not be the case, but here's what's critical, and this is important as a follow-up to this quote that I've just reproduced from Blomberg. What's critical is nowhere in 1 Samuel 28 in the Greek Septuagint is the word phantasma. It doesn't appear there at all. Now, obviously Blomberg isn't literally saying here that phantasma in 1 Samuel 28 refers to an apparition from the realm of the dead. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's just saying an example of the kind of apparition I'm talking about is what we see in Saul, Samuel, and the Witch of Endor in 1 Samuel 28. However, all I'm trying to stress here is that the word phantasma and anything like it does not exist in 1 Samuel 28. So it's at least possible to misread what Blomberg is saying here and come away with the misunderstanding that 1 Samuel 28 substantiates this understanding of Matthew 14, 26. It does not. That account does not. All right? But nevertheless, Blomberg, like France, who we looked at a moment ago, thinks that this is an apparition from the realm of the dead. And so too does Craig Keener in his commentary, uh, his IVP Bible Background commentary. He says that belief in ghosts or disembodied spirits was common on a popular level in antiquity, even though the idea of ghosts contradicted popular Jewish teachings about the resurrection from the dead. Now, look at that again. Look at that bolded p- part in the bottom half. The idea of ghosts contradicted popular Jewish teachings about the resurrection from the dead. Now, I haven't looked into that claim. I, I can not sub- I can neither substantiate nor re- debunk the claim that popular Jewish teachings in Jesus' day would have ruled out the idea of ghosts. But that wouldn't surprise me, given that I'm a physicalist and I think Jesus and his, his disciples were physicalists. But notice that the thing that I want to point out here is that Keener agrees with France and Blomberg that, this is, uh, that, the G- that the disciples are here expressing fear of what they think is a ghost, but he says they're doing so in contradiction to uh, popular Jewish teachings about the resurrection from the dead. I think that's interesting. What that should suggest, I think is is that if, if we take Craig Keener at his word, and, and he's a, a far more accomplished and knowledgeable and respectable scholar than I am, uh, but if we take him at his, at his word, that uh, the idea of ghosts would have contradicted popular Jewish teachings about the resurrection from the dead in Jesus' day, then shouldn't that um, predispose us to thinking that the disciples weren't fearing what they thought was a ghost? Wouldn't wouldn't popular Jewish teachings, if what Keener is saying is correct, um, shouldn't those popular Jewish teachings, if they contradicted the idea of ghosts, shouldn't they incline us to look for some other explanation other than ghosts first, to see if perhaps the disciples were fearing something else, and if we find that great, if not, then we fall back to the ghost thesis, but. It seems to me that if we accept what Keener is saying here, that we should first be looking for a view that would be consistent with popular Jewish teachings, that would exp- that would equally explain their fear. And if we find such a one, that should be our preferred understanding of the text rather than the ghost explanation. And by the way, consider how this might help apologetics. How many atheists do you think when they, um, if, if, uh, if you talk to them, About Jesus and his um, uh, his his uh, ministry. How many of them, if if for some reason you got into a conversation about this passage and and others like it, do you think that the atheists would say, "Oh yeah, but see those disciples—they were just superstitious sheep herders." You know, they're they're like they're like popular ghost hunter type people today. You know, you can't believe anything that they're saying. They're they're gullible. They're superstitious. But what if they weren't fearing ghosts, and what if they didn't believe in ghosts at all? It's arguable that that actually might, in some cases, remove an obstacle in the work of apologetics, in the realm of apologetics, which would give us another reason for uh, looking for an alternative explanation for the disciples' fear besides ghosts. So there's a a few reasons, there's at least a couple of reasons, not not even to mention my belief in physicalism, uh, which would be another reason to look for an alternative explanation. But again, I came to the conclusion I, uh, I have on these texts before I became a physicalist. Um, and In fact, I can prove it to you. Um, I, I, in my old blog, theapologetics.blogspot.com, I have an uh, entry on, um, not this text, I think. It might have been, no, I think it was this one. It was either this one or another one we're going to look at. Uh, but I... I dig into it there, and I was still a dualist at the time, and concluded that it, they weren't fearing ghosts, Alright. So, anyway, the, the, all, all I'm saying is physicalism is one reason, but not the only reason. There are these other reasons for at least wanting to find an alternative explanation for the disciples' fear, one is that if there's some other explanation that is consistent with popular Jewish teachings, uh, that would be a, a likelier candidate than ghosts. But secondly, it would help with apologetics because it would take away a little bit of the reasons that atheists might think that the disciples were just primitive sheepherders, gullible, superstitious people. But anyway, uh, the commentators seem fairly unanimous on this. And so um, I'm not, uh, I don't want you to just take my word for it. All right. But I do want to um, uh, offer some reasons why I think they're not actually talking about ghosts. And what I want to begin with is a look at the words cognate verb. For those of you who aren't familiar with the word cognate, um, when you have multiple words in a language that all derive from the same root, um, those are cognates. So um, Take, for example, the verb appear and the noun appearance. Right? Verb is appear, noun is appearance. Those are cognates. So the cognate noun of appear would be appearance. The cognate verb of appearance would be appear. right? Hopefully, you see the relationship there. As it turns out, phantasma, which our translations render ghost, um, has a cognate verb. Fantadzo or fantazamai, depending upon what lexicon you're looking it up in. I'm using Fantadzo. Um, and this verb appears in only one place in uh, the whole New Testament, and I may not appear, I haven't looked it up in the Old Testament. But it appears in Hebrews 12, 21. And look what it says. So terrifying was the sight, Fantadzo, that Moses said, I tremble with fear. And it seems, if perhaps um, he is the author of Hebrews, that is, is talking about um, when God appeared on Mount Sinai in cloud and smoke and fire, and people were uh, feared um, uh, dying because being eaten, being burned up at the base of the mountain if they drew too close or touched it or whatever. All right. Um, So it's interesting that in the one place that the cognate verb is used in the New Testament, it's not about um, ghosts or anything like it. It's about theophany, appearance of God on Mount Sinai. In fact, we see something similar. It doesn't use the word phantasma, but we see something similar in Acts 7, verses 30 to 32. An angel, this is, uh, I think this is Stephen, um, talking about... Uh, talking to his fellow Israelites about the history of Israel. He says, An angel appeared to Moses in a a flame of fire in a bush, and when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. He trembled and did not dare to look. And then we see in Exodus 3.6 that Moses hid his face when he saw the burning bush, for he was afraid to look at God. So notice what we see here. That And again, the word phantasma isn't here, the verb phantazo isn't here, I'm not trying to make the argument that it is, but what I am saying is, in it may be that what the author of Hebrews is talking about when he does use the cognate verb, is actually the theophanic appearance of God in the burning bush, in the malach of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, that appears there in the burning bush. Alright? Um, but that's really all the um, meaningful data that you're going to get, I think, from an exploration of the cognate verb fantazzo. Um, But keep that in mind. So the, one, the only use of it that we have that can help us to understand what the disciples are talking about, it's about a theophany of one sort or another. Perhaps even the kind of theophany in which God appeared to um, Moses in a burning bush as the angel of the Lord. We might also look at another cognate noun of uh, phantas- uh, phantasma. There's another um, noun from the same root, fantasia, um, which means an appearance. Actually, uh, it, it often means like pomp and circumstance. It had come to develop by the time of the New Testament, this idea of, you know, like, you, you remember you remember when, um, <laughs> you remember in, uh, 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 what? Why can I Aladdin in Aladdin? Whether you're talking about the Disney animated film or the or the live action reboot, neither way. You remember when Aladdin asks genie to make him Prince Ali, um and so that he can impress Jasmine, and then he he comes into um, the the town with all sorts of pomp and circumstance, you know, a parade and music and flowers and jewels and all that. That would also be Fantasia, but. It just means appearance, very similar to phantasma. And this word is used in a few places that are interesting. In the Testament of Solomon, a demon says, I am Beelzebul. Um, you'll recognize that from the New Testament, Beelzebub. And this uh, Solomon says, I, I demanded that he explain the manifestations, fantasia, of the demons. And then he promised to bring to me all the unclean spirits bound. So here, the cognate noun fantasia, Prince Ali, mighty as he, thanks for Taylor, No, Taylor, appreciate that in the chat. Um, so here, the kind of appearance uh, that, that he's talking about is an angelophany of sorts. The appearing of a demonic, angelic being. Um, so... I hope that you're starting to pick up on something interesting because what what I think you're going to find is that the pattern that we've begun to see only gets stronger. The pattern that we've begun to see by looking at one of phantasm, Phantasma's cognate verbs and, cog, and one of its cognate nouns, or, or its cognate verb and its cognate noun, I don't know if there are others, um, is that we're we're, the word refers to the kind of brightly sh, bright shining? In fact, uh, the, the word "phino" in Greek comes also from this root, or at least is related to "phantasma," "fantasia," and fantazo, and it means to shine. And the, re, and, and the reason why angelic and uh, angelic and godly appearances are described as "fantasia" or fantazo is, or, uh, is because and angels and God shine when they appear. But the point is, you see that a verb and the noun that we've looked at so far all has to do with uh, theophanic appearances of God or angel angelophanic appearances of angels and or demons. And what you're going to find out is that that continues to be the case as we explore other relevant um, contemporary literature in which the actual word that we care about is used, namely phantasma. Fant- um... So take, for example, Wisdom of Solomon, 1714. The text is talking about people who were sleeping and were vexed with monstrous apparitions. Phantasma. Now this doesn't tell us what it is. You can go and look it up for yourself, but I read through this portion of Wisdom of Solomon and cannot find anything in there that will tell us what these apparitions are. Um, So this just doesn't help us. But the rest of the occurrences of the word will help us, as you'll see. Josephus uses it in uh, Antiquities of the Jews to say that at the mountain of Sinai was the vision of the bush and the other wonderful appearances, phantasma. uh, Those other uh, wonderful appearances that happened. So what does Josephus use phantasma to refer to? A theophany. The same theophany that the author of Hebrews might have had in mind and that Stephen did have in mind in which God appears to Moses in the bush as the angel of the Lord, the ma'ach of Yahweh. All right, So here we have a continued pattern of this word group referring to theophanies or angelophanies. We can also see that Josephus uses the word in, uh, elsewhere in antiquities to refer to the angel that wrestled with Jacob. So Josephus says, now as Jacob was proceeding, angels, phantasma, appeared to him. Meeting with an angel, phantasma, he wrestled with him. The angel, phantasma, beginning the struggle, but he prevailed over the angel's phantasma. Or angel, uh, that might be a typo there. But the point is, is that all throughout this text, this theophanic appearance of God in um, the book of Genesis... Uh, wrestles th- th- that wrestles with Jacob, this theophany, if that's what it is, or at the very least an angelophany, is what Josephus uses the word to describe: the appearance of an angel, or God appearing, you know, as a, as a tangible person to wrestle Jacob. but we'll go with angel. But that's not all. We have later in antiquities, Josephus says that when this person's wife was once alone, an apparition, phantasma, was seen by her. And what kind of apparition was it? An angel of God. Um, he, I think. I think here he's actually talking about um, the uh, appearance of the angel to Mary. All right? Um, so, so here again. Apparition, phantasma refers to an angelic being an angelophany um, so and then i looked uh, uh, anywhere else i could find and could not find anything relevant so we don't have as far as i can tell and you can please do email me at the apologetics at hotmail.com or comment under this video if you find evidence that phantasma or it's cognate noun fantasia, or their cognate verb fantazzo or fantazamai, if you can find any evidence that these are used in relevant Jewish contemporaneous literature to refer to disembodied spirits or something like that, then great, f- point it to me. Because I can't find any. The only other occurrences of, of word the word group that I've been putting up here um, that I could find weren't about disembodied spirits or angelic beings. They were just they were just references to a sight, a, a, an amazing sight of some sort, um, like you know seeing God in clouds and fire or you know whatever, just strange, bizarre things that people see. The only times where the words that we've looked at have something to do with uh, are are they they refer to something identifiable. It's not disembodied souls or spirits or ghosts. It's about theophanies or more often angelophanies okay so with all of that out of the way um we're about to look at the at the other text because what what i'm arguing at this point is that all of the relevant data we have at our disposal suggests that while it's possible the translators all got this text right and that they and that the disciples feared what they thought was a ghost While that's possible, and while it's possible that that might coincide with um, a popular superstition in Jesus' day on the part of the Jews who believed in ghosts, although as we've seen from Craig Keener, that would contradict popular Jewish beliefs about resurrection, right? While that's possible, all of the relevant data that we have at our disposal suggests it's not a ghost that they think they're seeing, but rather a theophany or an angelophany. Now, by the way, why would that cause the disciples to be frightened? Well, what happens any time somebody sees the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament? They think they're going to die. What what happens to Isaiah when he sees the unmitigated glory of God in the book of Isaiah? He thinks he's going to die. He's come undone. Um, when people get too close to the mountain, uh, or they, they fear that if they get too close to the mountain, Mount Sinai, they're going to die, and on and on it goes. Um, you can even see in the New Testament that, uh, and I think I might have some text like that to look at on these slides, that the appearances of angels caused people to be frightened as well. If I don't, I'll bring those up before our time's over. So i I would vent, I would argue that all the data that we have that can help us to understand what's going on here suggests that what the disciples feared they were seeing was either a theophany, an appearance of God, the, the likes of which would normally kill a person, which obviously would be cause for fear, or they feared uh angelophany particularly of like an unclean spirit um and that too is something that would have caused them fear um meanwhile we don't have any evidence that they feared they were seeing a ghost so that's enough reason for me to think that this text that we've been looking at um Matthew 1426 i think it was and its parallel in Mark is about uh, either angelic beings or a theophany rather than ghosts. But what I want to do now is look to the other text and see if it can help us um, figure out if this new proposal I'm offering is better than or worse than the more popular ghost interpretation. And that other text is Luke twenty-four thirty-seven. This is when Jesus appears to them um, in the upper room after his resurrection. You'll sometimes hear Christians say that Jesus was able to go through walls... That's not what the text says. It doesn't say, like, Jesus was able to become, you know, partially invisible and was able to float through the wall. It doesn't say anything like that. All it says is that he suddenly appeared to them behind um, a locked door, and that could happen from teleportation, you know, I mean, it, but, but anyway, the point is, is that in this text, Jesus suddenly appears to the disciples, and Luke records in Luke twenty four thirty seven that they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Numa um, Now I put the English translate the English standard version up there I should have put the NIV though because it's in the NIV that it's translated ghost they were startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost. The ESV though is one of um, most I would say is probably most translations that render it more neutrally as spirit. importantly one textual variant of this text, uses the same Greek word that we were looking at in Matthew and Mark, phantasma. In fact, um, textual critics argue that phantasma is actually the harder reading, and usually text critics prefer the harder reading because it's easier to believe why a later copyist would, would get rid of a bad reading in favor, or sorry, a, they, w- they, would, they would replace an unlikely reading with what they thought was a likelier reading because maybe they thought it had been copied wrong. Usually, text critics don't want to go from what seems like a more likely reading to a, or sorry, they don't they don't think it's likely that copyist would have gone from a seemingly less controversial reading to a more controversial reading, um, and so they prefer to go from more controversial to less. And in this case, phantasma would be the um, m- more controversial reading. According uh, that's what the text critics say, and I don't, honestly don't even remember why. So I'm not going to try to explain why. But the point here is that we're dealing with pneuma or spirit, and possibly phantasma, that very word that we were looking at in Matthew and Mark. Now, the word pneuma does is used in a few places to refer to the spirit of human beings. However, so far as I can tell, it is never used to refer to a disembodied human spirit. Um, and it never seems to go... Uh, it never, Whenever it's used of a human spirit, it doesn't appear to be used as spirit, full stop. It's usually spirit of him, spirit of a man, spirit of people, their spirit, his spirit, or spirit, whatever. You don't find that the word pneuma being used all by itself to refer to a human spirit, full stop. So what then... Now, does that mean that it couldn't be that way here? Could this be a, a the one time that Pneuma refers to not just a human spirit, but a disembodied human spirit? Possibly, but perhaps it means something else. What if we go back to Luke 4, 33 3 to 36? In the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit, Pneuma, of an unclean demon. He commands the unclean spirits, Pneuma, and they come out. <laughs> Or what about Luke 6-18 and seven twenty one? Those who were troubled with unclean spirits, Pneuma, were cured. In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, Pneuma. Or what about Luke 8-2 and 29? Some women who had been healed of evil spirits, there's Pneuma again. He commanded that the unclean spirit, Pneuma, to come out. Or Luke nine thirty nine and 42, behold a spirit, Pneuma, seizes him. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, Pneuma. How about Luke ten twenty? Do not rejoice in this that the spirits, panuma, are subject to you. That is the unclean spirits that you're casting out. Or Luke eleven twenty four and twenty six. When the unclean spirit, pneuma, has gone out, it, uh, and then later it comes back, it brings seven other spirits or pneuma more evil than itself. So how does Luke frequently use panuma? He frequently uses it to refer to unclean spirits, demons. In fact, if it's, uh, they're, they're, usually Pneuma is combined with holy, and it refers to the Holy Spirit in Luke. Sometimes it's used by itself, and it still refers to the Holy Spirit, and it's just the Spirit with a capital S. Sometimes it's used to refer to human spirits, but never disembodied ones. It's the spirit, it's his spirit, her spirit, their spirit, the spirit of a man, whatever. The other kind of use that is extremely popular in Luke is demons, unclean spirits. So we go back then to what we noted from before when we looked at Matthew and Mark. All the evidence that we have at our disposal that could tell us what the disciples likely feared suggests that it was not ghosts that they saw or that they feared they were seeing. Because remember that would, according to Craig Keener, it would contradict popular Jewish teaching. Um, number two, the words, the word groups, the word group that contains fantazzo, fantasma fantaz, fantasia, and fantasma. Aren't used in relevant contemporaneous Jewish literature to refer to the um, demo- uh, to uh, uh, disembodied human spirits. So we don't have. So that's not support. There's no support there. What we do have in the relevant extra biblical contemporaneous Jewish literature is places are places where the word group refers to theophanies and angelophanies. So what do we find then when we look at Luke's passage in which one variant? uses phantasma but most of the texts in the manuscript traditions use pneuma we find that the evidence is that they feared they were seeing a demon an angelic or, or an angelic being of some sort and that's what they feared not um a disembodied human spirit now i said that um i might have some text in here that i um but I wasn't sure so let me bring it up that the, the texts um, that do uh, so remember I, I said a moment ago sorry I'm getting myself distracted because I want to bring something up but remember I said um, I said that uh, there are texts in which people fear, uh, angels when they appear. And I wanted to walk you through a couple of those because I forgot to put them up on the screen. Or I forgot to put them in, in my slides while I was preparing. So here's Luke 1, 11-12. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Or how about um, Luke 24-4? Um... While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men, that is angels, stood beside them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the angel said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? So you can see, then, that um, theophanies and angelophanies are both things that would have caused disciples to fear. Okay? We've also seen that... um, there's that the belief in ghosts would have contradicted popular Jewish beliefs about resurrection. We also saw that um, there is no evidence that the word group of fantazo phantazomai, fanta- uh, fantasia, and phantasma are used in extra-biblical contemporaneous Jewish literature to refer to ghosts. But we do have a number of extra-biblical res- uh, resources in which the word phantasma and others like it are used to refer to theophany and angelophany. So what does all of that evidence lead us reasonably anyway to conclude that there is no good reason for thinking that the disciples fear Jesus' ghost in Matthew 14, 26, cross-reference Mark 649, and Luke 24, 37. None. There's no good reason for it. Not that I can find. All the relevant data indicate that what they feared was what they thought was a theophanic appearance of God, the likes of which would often kill a person, or the appearance of an angelic or demonic spirit. That's that's my conclusion. Um, and for whatever it's worth, I think it should be your, conclu- your conclusion as well. Because again, there's just no... There's no reason... There's, there's no reason whatsoever for concluding that they feared they saw a ghost. Now I'm not saying that the ghost reading is is um, implausible, um, number one, yeah, if they thought they saw a ghost, that would probably be pretty frightening, and number two, it would make sense that if they saw a person that they had recently witnessed die standing before their midst, they might think it's a ghost, assuming they believe in ghosts. So it's it's a plausible reading. I'm not arguing that it's an implausible one or that it's incompatible with the text, but what I am saying is that there's literally not a shred of reason for thinking that's what's going on. Sure, in antiquity, in Greco Roman antiquity, many people believed, many people were superstitious and believed in hauntings and ghosts and things. And yes, maybe that was the case with the Jewish people, maybe. But as Craig Keener pointed out, that would contradict what were then popular Jewish beliefs about resurrection. And as I've now pointed out, the linguistic data from contemporaneous literature points far more heavily in the direction of the disciples fearing what they thought was either a theophany, which, by the way, would make sense if they thought Jesus is God, right? Um, or an angelophany, whether that's of a, um, an angel or a, a, you know, a heavenly angel or a demonic one. All of those are much more consistent with what the Jewish people would have believed in that day, they're much more consistent with how the word group phantasma, fantasia, phantazo, and Phantasmai are used elsewhere in literature. Um, and it's consistent with what Luke says when he uses the word spirit in Luke 24, 37, which again seems to be that they feared what they thought was a, an angelic appearance or a theophanic appearance. So, I think the case is very strong. But two things number one i'm open to being wrong about that um, and and keep in mind not even my belief in physicalism prevents me from being open to the possibility that they thought they saw ghosts i could just think they were wrong and that they had no good reason for believing in ghosts and they were just superstitious right so that wouldn't there, i have no reason to disbelieve that they thought they saw ghosts in terms of theological presuppositions excuse me um so I'm open to it, and I welcome you to send me evidence. Theapologetics at hotmail.com, comments on this YouTube video, give me any reason for thinking that that what the disciples believed they saw and what caused them fear was what they thought was a ghost. I, I'll I'll welcome it, I'd love to see that. But in the meantime, I think my case is pretty, pretty ironclad. And secondly, what I wanna emphasize is that if you are somebody who thinks I'm off my rocker for believing in physicalism, fine, that's okay. I probably am, but that doesn't mean that you have to hold on to the traditional interpretation of this text, the one that the that the translations all seem to favor. Um, even if they did not believe in ghosts does not mean they didn't believe in disembodied spirits in Sheol or Hades, right? They might have believed that um it just because even if they didn't believe in ghosts and weren't afraid because they thought Jesus won that wouldn't prevent you from continuing to believe the bible teaches dualism so there should likewise be no theological presupposition on your side that makes you want to accept the popular reading so uh that's my case that I'll leave in your hands I'd love to hear what you think um I'll see if there's anything in the uh, in the chat worth responding to um. Robert Nass Worthington, you make a good argument, but it seems to me that one would have to explain why the New Testament writers use phantasm only in this instance. They could have used Angelos or pneuma. You're right, they could have. But then you've got to explain why all the relevant extra-biblical Jewish literature from the time, uh, relevant time frame, why they never use phantasm to refer to disembodied human spirits outside of Hades. Right? Don't you have to? Don't you have to account for that? Um, and by the way, it's not just that one New Testament writer. It's arguably Luke as well, as well, although albeit in a minority manuscript that probably isn't original. But still, that seems to suggest that at least some early um, copyists thought that phantasm was a good use for what Luke uses. Um, meanwhile, as I said, even though. It, it is interesting that Matthew chooses phantasm rather than spirit or angel. Nevertheless, he uses a word where, in all the relevant extra-biblical data, it points to theophany or angelophany. So, you know what? I don't, I don't have any problem um, uh, being unable to explain why Matthew chose phantasma rather than Puma or angelos. Um, there are lots of hapax legomena in scripture, and this would just be one of them. Um, so I don't, I don't think I have a problem there. What I think I need to see are evidence, are examples in extra-biblical contemporaneous Jewish literature in which phantasma, phantasma or phantazo, phantazomai, are used to refer to the appearances of disembodied human spirits. If you can show me that, then I think you might have something. But until then, I'm sorry that popular reading stands on no ground at all, at all. It's just floating in midair. So hopefully that uh, helps, and I think that it should encourage. If you're somebody who has, even if only a little bit, feared ghosts, and if for any reason you thought that the disciples' fear of ghosts meant it was reasonable for you to fear ghosts as well, well, now you know you don't need to. <laughs> you don't need to continue to. Um, To lean on those texts anymore because they don't suggest that. Um, Just by way of reminder, as I said at the beginning, the next episode of the show, two weeks from today, will be Monday, June 14th. And I will be playing what will by that point be my pre-recorded interview with Stephen Meyer author of Return to God Hypothesis. And then, as I said, in an upcoming episode after that, will be an interview with Eric Silverman on the virtue of chastity. And then, hopefully, in an upcoming episode, I'll be able to discuss physicalism and the Council of Chalcedon with Joel Green. So, I think some good shows uh, to look forward to. But um, I guess that's it for today. and it's two minutes before the hour, so I came in just in the right amount of time. Thank you so much for those of you who tuned in live. Um, if you And thanks for those of you who've watched till the end, if you're watching this recorded several days after the stream or whatever. I appreciate it, and I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it's been helpful. And as I said, email me or comment in the video if you think I've missed some evidence that might suggest the more popular reading is accurate. But otherwise, I'm going to stick with what all the data seems to suggest, and I recommend that you do so as well. Take care, and I will see you next time. Bye-bye. I've been your host, Chris Date, and thanks so much for watching The Apologetics, where we think together through what we believe, why we believe it, and not something else. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then...